All right, so as we're beginning our gospel here in Matthew on Wednesday nights uh, in the men's study, we just began uh, the book of Daniel. So Daniel is that first section of the Old Testament that's called the Minor Prophets. They're minor because of the length of these documents, but in the men's study, we're going to walk through all 12 of the Minor Prophets in order. When you begin with Daniel, Daniel, there is a heavy amount of future predictive prophecy in the book of Daniel, which we're going to be spending a lot of time picking through around the table as we study that. When you sit in the Gospel of Matthew, as we travel through the Gospel of Matthew, multiple times he is going to say, this was done in Jesus's life to fulfill what was written in the Old Testament. So there's all these specific prophecies about who the Messiah would be, and Matthew, as he conveys the good news, the gospel to us, repeatedly goes back to the Old Testament. Here, we're going to sit in Isaiah. This is 700 years before Jesus came. Here's a prophecy and multiple prophecies about his life, about who he would be, that were fulfilled in his life that we're going to see this morning. So that's why we're beginning here in Isaiah. And also, it's not just to look at what's being quoted but it's also to try and help our, get our minds in the framework of the culture of the event that we're going to read this morning. So this is going to be helpful for all of us. If you, know, if you don't know Isaiah at all, in chapter 6 you have this incredible vision that Isaiah is given of our Almighty God, which is fascinating. I encourage you to read through it if you never have. But in 7 and 8... There's three different sons that are listed, and two of them are very clearly the sons of Isaiah and his wife, and they're given specific prophetic names to give meaning to the prophecy that's going on in their current context, current events, 700 B.C., and the current event is because of the nation of Israel's sin, God is going to send the nation of Assyria to come and conquer the northern tribes of Israel and harass the southern tribe of Judah. And in this, there is this, there is going to come this swift destruction from the north, the nation of Assyria. There's this Emmanuel prophecy that God is going to be with the children of Israel during this time. And then that last son's name deals with the idea that there is a remnant that God is going to keep and that he is going to bring back. So that's the, that's the current context of this prophecy. The, the two sons where it's the, there's the, the, you know, this war is going to come and a remnant is going to come back. Those are specific sons of Isaiah. This middle son for Emmanuel, which is defined as God with us, we don't know whose son that is and who it's addressing. So this prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 10 says, The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, this is the king of Judah, and he is an evil king. Isaiah says to him, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above, and Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And again, that's not a statement of faith. It's, a, it's actually a statement of unbelief in his life. Verse 13 says, Then he said, and this is Isaiah, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, and it goes on there. That's a, behold, the virgin shall conceive 
and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the line that Matthew is going to quote in the section that we're going to be in, in Matthew. In the Hebrew language, there's, there's a debate and an issue in regards to what the Hebrew word means for virgin. Is this just in reference to a young woman of marriageable age is what the word meant in the culture. And the direct link is that, in, that time and that day, the culture that is going to be defined as that young lady is a virgin. Now, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they use the word, and this was in about 200, 250 B.C. is when this translation occurred. They intentionally used the Greek word parthenos, which is the Greek word for virgin. That's going to come, and that's going to be important as we get into this morning's text, because there are many scholars, not just in all throughout history, uh, but specifically in our day for sure, that try and uh, throw stones at and remove that foundation of this miraculous birth that occurs in Jesus's narrative. And we'll get into the importance of that in just a minute. But in regards to this specific prophecy in Isaiah and Ahaz's day, where it's talking about this young woman is going to conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. No one knows if that's Hezekiah's son. Nobody knows if that's Isaiah's son. But further definition, flip over to chapter 9, gives further definition for who this Emmanuel son will be. So Isaiah 9, 6 says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with, ju with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Has that prophecy been fulfilled? This is, the son has been given. Part of that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus when he was sent, and we're going to step into that narrative in the Gospels. But part of this, we're also waiting for the future fulfillment when Jesus is going to return. But it gives very clear definition of who this child is going to be, and this is linked to different messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Again, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. His name will be called Mighty God. His name will be called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Very specific definitions. Turn to Isaiah 11. 11 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. That's David's dad. So again, the specific fulfillment and promise. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Turn to Jeremiah, the next prophet over in chapter 23. All of this information is going to help us sit in the mindset of Matthew and his day and what the Jews were looking forward for in regards to who the Messiah was to be, who Jesus is, 
and even those future promises that he will fulfill when he returns. So Jeremiah 23 says, Woe to the shepherds, these are the the leaders in the nation, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, against the shepherds who feed my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor, nor be dismayed, nor shall, there, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness, A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the children out of Israel from the land of Egypt, But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Jeremiah is a couple generations beyond Isaiah. As Jeremiah is there as a prophet in the nation, he is there when God is using the Babylonian nation to come and discipline and chastise the nation of Israel. But again, as Jeremiah is speaking the words of God to his culture, how would the culture of his day heard these words? There is, the Babylonians are going to come, and they are going to destroy Jerusalem, and they are going to destroy the temple. That happened in 586 B.C. The nation of Israel was carried away captive for 70 years, and God promised to bring those captives back. That's prior to this promise. So the current prophets, the current encouragement, that current voice in that culture is that God, as he disciplines them at this time, when God brings the children of Israel back, which he did, that this is the government, this is the Messiah, this is the expectation of a king to sit on the throne of David and his kingdom and his judgment and his righteousness and his justice, that he was going to lead the nation of Israel forever and ever. Now, flip to the Gospel of Matthew. As we sit in Matthew's time and in Matthew's culture, is the nation of Israel living out the fulfillment of that prophecy of Jeremiah and Isaiah? They're not. They're back in the land. But in Matthew's day, as the Jews are back in the land of Israel, their oppressors are the nation of Rome. They don't have freedom. They have a foreign kingdom that is ruling over them, and they are subject to that kingdom. So the culture is they're sitting in the Old Testament prophecies and promises of God in regards to who the anointed one is. 
And again, this idea of Messiah, this idea of Christ, there, there's anointing of oil. It means to rub is the idea of the word. But a king was anointed, a prophet was anointed, and a priest was anointed in the Old Testament. The culture is crying out to their creator and to their God for deliverance from their oppressors, that God would send the promised king, the promised priest, the promised Messiah, that he would come and that he would rule and reign and bring about true judgment and true justice and true righteousness into the culture, that God would fulfill all of his promises. So as we're sitting in Matthew's narrative and his biography of who Jesus is as Christ, who he is as the son of David and as the son of Abraham that we sat in last week, that's the, that's the weight that the culture is feeling in its day. We don't feel, we have a tremendous amount of freedom in the nation in which we live. We don't know what it's like to be underneath the boot of a foreign oppressor. But this is the culture. This is what they're crying out for. And they're yearning for God to fulfill his promises. Just like you may be yearning in your own personal context. God, I've read this in your word and I'm crying out to you for safety, for salvation, for deliverance. These are the ideas that are, God brought up in that prophecy through Jeremiah to the people that the nation would dwell in safety, that the nation itself would be saved. So as we sit in the narrative as it continues this morning, all of these ideas are playing out in who it is that Jesus is, not just who he was, but who he is. And as we, uh, a, a important foundation from the get-go in, in chapter 1, verse 1 of Matthew. This is the book of the Genesis, the beginning of Jesus, the Christ. When we talk about Jesus, we're not, just, we're not talking about just a man. I don't worship a man or a woman ever. There's a lot of people that I respect, I love, figures that are alive, figures that are throughout history, but I don't put my knees on the ground and my head on the ground to any creature. When we look at Jesus, he is very clearly defined in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is the mighty God who chose to become just like the creatures that he created in his image. He didn't come to be a dog. He didn't come to be a whale. He didn't come to save anything or anyone else other than that, male and female, which he created in his image. And that's the weight and the importance of who this man, Jesus, is being declared to be. That's the importance of the genealogy that we covered last week. And now in chapter 1, verse 18 of Matthew, we continue the definition of who he is. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But when he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So this morning, the title of the message is The Son of Mary, as we look at Jesus in this context and this history. So it begins with, here's how his birth Here's how his birth came about. So you have his mom, Mary. We have to be really cautious when you say that Mary is the mother of Jesus. Absolutely true. When you say that Mary is the mother of God, that brings a lot of other mythologies, false religious religions, false ideas, false connotations about who Mary was. We'll get into that as we continue this morning. But Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found with child. So here's the idea culturally. When a girl reaches the point of her first period, at that point of first period, she's now able to be uh, to enter into what's identified as a betrothal period. Usually, this happened historically in the nation of Israel, anywhere from 12 to 16 years old for a young lady. Cultural context for the day that we live in, that is absolutely insane, yes? Can everybody amen and agree with that? But here you have, in the culture, in the day, this is not just, we are very independent and individual in our nation. We make our own choices. Um, I chose to marry who I wanted to marry. I didn't ask my parents' permission. I didn't ask her parents' permission because I was a jerk and I just did what I wanted to do. And God has protected us and blessed us in the union that we have as husband and wife, which is awesome. But here, in this culture, in this day, once your daughter reaches this age where she is entering into womanhood, it's the parent's responsibility. There's a community relationship going on, but it's the parent's responsibility to choose for their daughters a man that is going to be a strong man of God and a strong husband and a strong father for this new family that's going to be brought about. There's a very important community relationship. So as you're, you as parents, and again, I amen this as I've got, well, one's now married off, but two more, you know, I want the applications on who those potential brides are for my sons, right? I want to know who they are. I want to know their families. I want to have a little bit of say in this. In this culture, the parents had much say. So Mary's parents, at some point in her early teens, they've selected Joseph and his family that Joseph is going to be Mary's future husband. And this is a very, this is, not, this is beyond just an engagement that we have in our culture. They're entering into a contract together as families. A bride price would be agreed upon, part of a dowry may have been paid. But at some point, again, most commentators put Mary somewhere in that 14 to 16 years old at this time in her life where she has been contractually obligated in a betrothal marriage to Joseph which the, the legal weight of that to undo that, uh, that commitment and that vow is going through a divorce. So in sitting in this testimony and what's going on, here is Joseph and Mary in this betrothal relationship. 
the, the, the rabbis of the day, they said the ideal age for a man to get married was somewhere between 18 to 20. So you have him pushing 20 years old. You have her pushing 16 years old. And here, we don't have uh, Mary's side of the narrative. If you want that, go read the Gospel of Luke, the first couple of chapters, and you get Mary's perspective on this narrative. But here, Matthew is focusing on Joseph's narrative. And it comes out in this. And again, this is, this is one of the big things to point out in this section. This is not mythology. This is not some hyperbolic, weird, um, supernatural story. Mer- uh, Matthew is very direct. He's very to the point where here's a circumstance in this young betrothed couple. And the young lady, Mary, is found. She's discovered to be pregnant. Shove Mary into our culture today. What would our culture communicate to Mary? 16-year-old young lady engaged in our culture, heavier emphasis in her culture. What would our culture communicate to her today? The majority of our culture. Even the majority of the church would highly encourage Mary to get an abortion. Here you are, a young woman, you were found with child. Nobody's going to believe her story that this child is of God. Has she been raped? Has she been promiscuous? All of this story and all of this narrative is going through everybody in Mary's life that's listening to the testimony of what's going on in her body. You have in Luke, she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth. She's there with Elizabeth for a few months. It's understood that that's, you know, when she comes back from Elizabeth, that the baby bump is starting to show. She's been away from home. She wasn't pregnant when she left, and she comes back home, and now she's pregnant. What happened? And the the chattering is going on. In her culture, abortion's not an option. In our culture, you put this young lady into our culture, Many in our culture would communicate to Mary, you ought to abort the Messiah. How many? And again, this is, this is, there's nothing political here whatsoever. This is just trying to sit in the word of God and the sanctity of life and that we are creatures. We are intentionally created. Whether you think a pregnancy is a mistake or not, that child has been created by the sovereign God. How many Brothers and sisters, have their entire stories been erased from our culture because individuals have pressed into that freedom and that choice that we have in our time and in our day to eradicate a life that is seen as inconvenient. This is the narrative of the genealogy above. Mary, in her time, we are told that Young ladies of their day were looking to God and praying to God that they'd be the woman chosen and selected by God to bring the Messiah into this world. That would have been a very pious prayer of the day. Mary may have prayed that prayer. Do you think that she knew that the circumstance, that this was going to be the circumstance of that pregnancy? No. So here, she's been revealed that she is going to be with a child of the Holy Spirit. So our understanding, is again, is that God took her egg, and then just as he supernaturally and miraculously and intentionally with his power created Adam and Eve to begin with, here he is 
taking of his creation, Eve, and inserting himself in, in, in a miracle and conceiving a child in her womb. This doesn't have anything to do with the, all the weird mythologies of the gods coming down and having sex with women. None of that is part of this narrative at all. This is God miracul- miraculously merging himself with his creature for the sole purpose, we're told, to save his people from their sins. But as Joseph is listening to this narrative, Matthew identifies Joseph as a just man, which is, I just, it's an awesome, as you sit with the story of what he chose to do in this moment, it takes an incredible amount of faith, both for this young man and this young woman, to continue to walk forward with what God selected them to do. God intentionally chose Mary, God has intentionally chosen Joseph. In before she conceived, God had sent the Gabriel, uh, the angel Gabriel, to Mary to let her know what was going on because she needed to know and she needed to have great faith and understanding. This is what God is doing. At the same time, Joseph is sitting in this news and this information in regards to what he is witnessing in Mary's belly, listening to that testimony. And he, the language is really powerful. He's determined in his heart. Again, as a godly man, as a gentle man, and as a compassionate man to undo this vow that they have together and divorce her and to put her away secretly. In the culture, in the day, like you can go sit in uh, John chapter 8. This is a whole scene known as the woman who is caught in adultery. Here the culture catches the woman. Nothing's told about the man, but a woman is caught in the very act of adultery. She is drugged before Jesus and says, the Old Testament, the law tells us that this woman should be stoned to death. What do you say, Jesus? And goes through that whole scene. And Jesus forgives her of her sins, sends her away, and declares that he is the light of the world. Joseph, in his culture, in the laws of his day, in his time, he has the right to have her publicly brought before the community, have her publicly judged and condemned, and to pick up a stone and hurl it at her head. Within his rights, in his time, and in his day. But his heart, how he's wired, and his relationship with God, he has a relationship with God. He is imaging God's compassion. He is imaging God's mercy. He is imaging God's grace. He is giving to Mary in this moment, determining in his heart to have the mind that I'm going to put her away secretly. I'm going to undo myself and detach myself from her issues, and I'm going to keep living my life is his heart in this context. But again, in the mercy of God, being able to convey to Joseph in a way where he can wake up from this dream and he can have the emphatic, confident knowledge that what's going on in our life together is Joseph and Mary. This is of God. This is the will of God. This is his plan. This is his purpose. This is going to be hard. This is going to stink. They are going to have the cultural judgment come upon them. They are going to have family judgment come upon them. And they are going to have to live out this event the rest of their days. And both of them, together, are willing to move forward and do the hard thing that God is directing them to do. 
Do you think that their life was easy? Do you think that their life was... Um, how, many, how many questions, how many conversations did Joseph and Mary have together? What in the world is God doing? As she birthed Jesus into this world and they are there parenting him and changing all the mess and everything that parents have to go to, all the different conversations that they would have had together. This is one thing that I do know in regards to their marriage and why I think Joseph is such an awesome man. Ladies, find yourself in that context where you are being condemned by the world around you for the position of your pregnancy in your life and you feel no value, you feel that shame. Again, this is, uh, she didn't have guilt, but you would feel that guilt and all of those different emotions that would be attached to what's going on in your life. And you have a man that can freely and justifiably walk away from you in that moment, but that man chooses to stay and that man chooses to love you and provide for you and protect you. Ladies, do you want that man to be your husband? Yes or no? How safe do you think Mary felt with Joseph? Even though here's a man that family chose the man. Ultimately, God's in control of all of this. I guarantee Mary felt very loved her entire marriage. I guarantee she felt very valued and protected when all of the rest of the world was condemning her, when she had to sit in those emotions and those conversations and the eyes and the whispers all the days of her life. There her husband was there in the night when she's sitting there crying and processing through this stuff to encourage her, to love her, to remind her of who God is, to remind her that she is the most blessed woman that has ever been born on this planet because God chose her to bring the Messiah into this world world. What an awesome narrative of this man and this woman. But ultimately, this, this scene, again, the child, Jesus, he is, this is a miraculous event of the Holy Spirit, sends an angel of the Lord to confirm and to instruct, tells Joseph not to be afraid, gives him the same information that he gave to her so that they would be in unity, but gives a very specific name for our Savior, and that's Jesus. So Jesus, for us, it's translated into our English language from the Greek. So in the Greek, it's Iesus, but it's a transliteration of his Hebrew name, which is going to be Joshua, Yehoshua, Hosea, Hosea, or Yeshua. All of those names in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, they all refer to salvation that God saves. Not going to get into it this morning at all, but it is fascinating to look at and compare Joshua and who he is as a leader and commander in the nation of Israel in his day and how Joshua images the Messiah for us. 
You can see it in the book of Zechariah, which you have the high priest Yeshua in that scene, Joshua in, uh, in the book of Zechariah, and how as the high priest he images Jesus for us. And you also can sit in the prophet Hosea, which we will sit in once we finish uh, Daniel in our men's study, and all that Hosea represents and images for us in regards to not just being a prophet, but the hard thing that God told Isaiah to do, which God told Isaiah to go and marry a prostitute, and that she was going to have children of her prostitution, and he was going to remain married to this woman and raise her children as his own. Hard calling for Hosea? Absolutely. And all that that image is in regards to our God choosing us even though we can take on that imagery of adultery, he still loves us, he still pursues us, he still calls us his own. When we sit in the name of Jesus, it comes with all of that Old Testament weight and imagery in regards to his nature and his character. But the thrust of the word of God, the thrust of all of history is this singular name, Jesus. This is the singular name that is greater than every other name. Our names identify who we are to each other in our time and in our culture. So when you shout out my name, I'm the one who's going to turn to my head. But when you sit in the Bible, this is, this is one of those few occasions in the Word of God where the Almighty God says, this is the name. And when God steps into the human context and he's naming a child and he says, this is going to be the child's name, it's because that there is to be an image conveyed in regards to the nature and character of God through that individual. Jesus, his identity, his character, what he is to image, who it is that he is, who it is that he was, what he did, what he's going to do, it all revolves around that he and he alone is the savior of humanity. And then you got you to sit in this whole idea of like, what are you being saved from? We read in Jeremiah, in that prophecy, no longer are you going to call the Lord as he is the one who delivered you from Egypt. You go sit in that Old Testament scene where the nation of Israel is underneath this bondage in this slavery of the nation of Egypt. Egypt, in that, conveys to us, it conveys the flesh, it conveys the world, it conveys to us being owned and possessed by another, how your life is completely controlled, how there is no satisfaction in your life and in your existence at all, getting the human soul to that point where they're crying out to your Lord and your Creator, I need to be saved and I need to be delivered. Some of that is very personal to us where I've had my moments where, again, before the Lord, I'm crying out to God. I'm abiding in conviction if I understood that I was not what and who and doing the things that I wanted to be and do. Does that make sense? God was convicting me through his Holy Spirit and bringing me to a position to be receptive to the revelation and the understanding of who this God is and what it means to be saved and delivered from junk, from darkness, from sin, from pain, from ultimately death. 
The narrative of the Bible is that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God and created perfectly. In that garden scene in Genesis chapter 3, you have a deception come in, the deceiver come in, a twisting come in, and all Adam and Eve did was disobey the command of God. And through that singular disobedience, they sinned, which means that they missed, they failed, they made an ignorant mistake. They made an intentional sin. And in that scene, we're told that their sin is what brought about death. And that as we sit in the narrative of human history, every child that is born is inheriting that same sin nature. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Adam and Eve's son, Seth, was created in the image of Adam. Humanity takes on the imprint of humanity of flesh and of sin. So why is the virgin birth so important? Why is it important to believe and know and understand that when God sent his son, and here we have this idea of his only begotten son, and that is a title, Mary's firstborn son, but Jesus also being identified as the firstborn in the imagery that's conveyed there. Why is it important to know and understand that he is not just another man, but he is the almighty God who became one with his creatures? That's the only sacrifice that can cover, atone, remove the guilt the consequences, and the punishment of sin and death. If I tell you that I love you, that I care for you, that I have compassion for you, and I'm going to die for you, my death doesn't make you clean. It doesn't deliver you from your future death. But this is what we're conveyed in the gospel. Everything about who Jesus is, his purpose, why God created the heavens and the earth, is in his glory and his majesty and all that he is, he has a desire to share what and who he is with others that he created. To bring that full unity about, he had to become one with us. And in that unity and in that oneness, he lived a perfect, sinless, holy, God-honoring life perfect life. The life that Adam should have lived, that he failed to live, the life that we should live, that we fail to live every day, is the life that he lived for us. Perfect so that when he went to the cross, as he is dying the death that every single one of us deserve to die, as your sins and my sins are being laid upon him, all of our punishment, all of our guilt, we are told that when he took his last breath, he says, it is finished. The payment has been paid. The singular evidence of that is his resurrection from the death. No other human, even when Jesus brought back Lazarus and others from death, did those people still die again? Sit in the weight of what's being conveyed. This isn't a mythology. This is a historical fact. Here's the historical fact being declared to us in regards to 
Here is the narrative of his birth and the importance of it, not just focusing on Joseph and Mary and what was going on in them and how they had to walk all of this out in their faith and trust in God, but the attention is on Jesus. The attention is on who he is, who he has always been, and what it, he, what it is that he did while he was on this earth. And this is the whole narrative of what Matthew was conveying as an evangelist of the gospel. Jesus went to the cross and he rose again. I saw him, I heard him, I ate with him, I touched him before, I saw him dead, I saw him resurrected, I saw him ascend to heaven. This is the, this is the testimony that we're listening to. So at the beginning of this, at the head of this, when he is declaring to us, this is the Jesus that I am going to be unveiling to you in the narrative of this gospel. When he is teaching, you have to have this foundation. These are the words of the Almighty God. When he is there in his compassion, when he is there in his tears, when he is there in his prayers, when he is there calling men and women to himself, when he is there rebuking the religious leaders, when he is there uh, you know, declaring how great the faith of an individual is, we're not just looking at the words and the life and the history of a man. We're looking at the love and the grace and the compassion and the majesty of the God who created us. So at the weight of this word, here is the narrative. Here is the good news of Jesus. And that name, when you hear it, here is the one who saves. Here is the one who makes you safe. Here is the one that takes you out of the danger of death and brings you into his life. Here is the one who takes you out of the danger of your circumstance. Even though you have to continue to walk down this hard path, whatever it may be, with Joseph and Mary, that was a hard path. But here is your Emmanuel. Here is your God with you. Here is your God attending to you. In the prophecy that he gave to Jeremiah, God's promise to the nation of Israel, I am going to attend to your evil. Do you want God to attend to you according to the evil and sin in your life? God forbid. And that becomes the whole definition and description of what hell is. But here's God's attention towards us. From the very beginning, before he even created the heavens and the earth, I am attending to you. So much so, I am going to come and I am going to deal with your evil on the cross. I'm going to save you from your sins. I'm going to save you from your dark heart. I'm going to save you from the way that you think. I'm going to save you from your culture and conformity to it and all the different ways that it spots you. And I'm going to be with you and I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to transform you. I'm going to love you. When you fail, I am there to encourage and help you recover and be rebuilt and be restored until that day that I am going to recreate you in my image. And whoever has that hope, you're going to be pure in this life. When your brain and your heart and your mind, you want to go abide in junk where God tells you not to abide in, he's going to be right there with you, convicting you, redirecting you back to himself, cleansing you, restoring you, 
whispering his words of love and pouring out his words of love towards you, just like the sound of Niagara, that sound of a mighty rushing water. And all of this, as we sit in, the, as we sit in this gospel, as we sit in the unveiling of who it is that our God is, this is what we're to never lose sight of. It's, it's stupid and it's silly. On the front of my car, my little vanity plate on the front, it says Jesus, period. And it comes out of that. I don't know about your translation, but he shall be called Jesus. My, my translation has Jesus in all caps in a period. And that's where it comes out for me. Because in all of my life, in all of my doing, and here, again, Joseph gets up and he does what the Lord commands him to do. Good job, Joseph. I guarantee Joseph got up on many days and he didn't do what God commanded him to do. And he made his mistakes and he made his failures. Foundation of it all the goal of it all, the, the process of my daily walk and my daily relationship, and there is Jesus. You keep preaching Jesus to yourself. You keep preaching Jesus to the world around you. Don't preach any other message where you haven't been confident that these would be the words that would pour out of Jesus' mouth. And I'm talking to myself right now. I need to make sure that as I think and as I speak, Lord, may my words be conformed to you and not conformed to the narrative of the world, not to the narrative of any church, of any pastor, of any book, but may my life be conformed to the image of you. And not just conformed, not just pressed into that mold, but radically transformed. Amen? I, I hope, worship team, come on. I just, I really, truly hope my yearning for myself is that I am uh, constantly attending to the name of Jesus because there is no greater name in my life than his name. When it comes to the questions that I'm asking on a daily basis, my wife, my kids, my job, my plans, my dreams, I want to go on a vacation right now and I want to spend a lot of money on the vacation because I want to spoil my wife. But in that, Lord, Jesus... Where, do you, where, where can I go? I don't care if it's to the backwoods of Tennessee or if it's to some tropical island paradise, right? All I know is that wherever I can go, I need the rest, I need the respite, but there is Jesus in me making the plans and something simple like that. There he is walking with me in that rest and in that peace. He'll be with me when I come back to do the work. He's with me right now. Again, I'm constantly preaching Jesus to myself because I can tell you by testimony, I am a miserable, empty wretch when I forget the name of Jesus in any big or small context in my life. So you keep lifting the name of Jesus. All right, instructions. Feel free to come and grab communion to remember him and worship him over these next couple of songs. Go ahead and take communion privately rather than corporately this morning, or you can get in your family unit and do it together. But let us worship not just Jesus, but his Father, the Almighty God, the Holy Spirit, who is here and who dwells within us through faith, our triune God. He is here. He is to be worshiped. He is to be loved and adored and followed and admired. Oh my, how powerful is the name of Jesus.